0: Hi, I'm Cathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years' experience of working with young people, and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In each episode, we'll welcome an expert guest who will address a different topic that, as modern parents, we are bound to encounter at some point. In this episode you'll hear from Dr Charlotte Faircloth.
1: One of the things this podcast is quite interested in is the modelling of equality for our children. And so what does it mean for children to sort of see how family life actually kind
0: of works in practice? As Associate Professor of Social Science in the UCL Social Research Institute, Dr Faircloth's research into parenting, gender intimacy and equality looked at how couples divide childcare and issues around gender equality. Enjoy this episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST with Dr Charlotte Faircloth. So Charlotte, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. There is so much to talk about, so let's start by asking about perhaps some of the effects of COVID on gender roles at home. So when so many modern couples are feminist and they know that they should be splitting this unpaid work equally, why are we still seeing such an imbalance? And how did COVID exacerbate this? I think in some ways it, the pandemic has sort of magnified a lot of issues
1: that have been um, visible in wider society for you know many, many years. In that uh, there has always been a kind of uh, gender division around the organisation of labour, both inside the home and outside the home you know so one of the things that my work has been really interested in is how that has sort of changed i suppose in the last 50 years or so so we've seen kind of much uh, higher levels of women going into the workforce particularly since the 1950s and you know obviously um these days women actually make up over half of the workforce but at the same time they are still the ones carrying what's called sort of you know the the domestic load in which incorporates sort of the running of the household as well as uh raising children. And so a lot of uh sociologists, social scientists have been really interested in that phenomenon and you know what it kind of tells us about, you know, wider society, gender relationships, and that kind of thing. But kind of as you hinted at in your question, the pandemic really kind of blew the whole thing up. Because I think many of us kind of felt that a lot of progress had been made in terms of, you know, the division of labour and, and things like that. But when lockdown came in, for example, children couldn't go to schools or nurseries, people weren't allowed to come into the home to support with childcare, and yet many parents were still expected to be working. Um, Suddenly, the whole kind of infrastructure fell apart. And what's been very interesting um, in my research, which has been looking at the effect of COVID on family life, both in the UK and, and other countries around the world, is that, you know, the, the impact of that has been felt disproportionately by women. So women of colour in particular, but women, you know, all over the world, really, almost regardless of what the government policy was around COVID. And that's something that, again, you know, research arranged in why these sort of gender equalities are persisting um, when, as you say, so many people
0: are apparently committed to gender equality. So, can I take you back to what you said a moment ago about you know the whole family suddenly being housebound, um, people not going to work as they would normally do, which would surely imply that dads are home more? Talk to me about how and why perhaps that wasn 't the case? Well, I think the
1: first thing to say is sometimes when we talk about work, we perhaps have quite a kind of middle class vision of what work looks like, like the kind of jobs that people can bring back to the home, use a laptop, work remotely. You know those kind of things. That's obviously not the case for many, many people thinking particularly about you know key workers. If you drive a tube or a bus or you clean a hospital, you know, so I think there's a kind of class element to that there. But, yes, it wasn't just women who were told to stay at home. It was all you know workers, although as we said, there's a kind of gender uh, difference around um who was a key worker and that kind of thing. But really, what became evident was that so many of the sort of solutions to gender inequality, rely on outsourcing of the labor of the home so somebody else you know comes in does your cleaning uh, you can take your children somewhere else to be looked after etc cetera, etc cetera. and when that fell away interestingly, it was still uh, women who were kind of picking up the slack. Really, what I suppose my work has been concerned to do is provide a kind of cultural account of why that is the case. It's really, (laughs) I mean, to, to put it very, very simply, that women worry more about parenting than men, because there is this kind of cultural uh, weight on them uh, to do that in that they are held accountable for children's outcomes in ways that men just aren't.
0: Let's talk about that. That's a very interesting point. Do do you feel then that the onus is on men to step up and to do more at home um, or that it is a wider cultural um, problem that the government should be doing more to take that pressure off women?
1: I mean, I think, you know, ideally it would be some combination of both. But yeah, I'm always quite anxious about sort of saying, oh, well, it's up to couples to have this very, you know, difficult conversation and then push back against kind of wider culture because uh, actually that that's those sort of cultural expectations are a huge weight for, for people to bear. So when I think about the experience of becoming a parent as a woman, and you can kind of see you know, right from the word go, even these days, I don't know if you've seen recently, you know, the WHO issuing um, guidance around the fact that women who are thinking of becoming mothers at some point should be avoiding alcohol entirely, you know, in their reproductive years. It just sort of, you know, your very biology as a woman is uh, sort of medicalized, is an issue for the state in terms of population health, all of that. And I don't think men quite are drawn into it in the same way. So I think it's partly about, you know, thinking about, yeah, how how can we as a society sort of phrase the responsibility for raising healthy children slightly um, differently, I suppose. But, you know, obviously, having some tough conversations is also part of it. There is a sort of a reality around, you know, the fact that women uh, tend to sort of, gestate children in the womb and then um, you know give birth let's say so obviously things like you know drinking alcohol during pregnancy does tend to relate to women like that but when you look at so much of the literature around parenting there's this massive kind of expansion from these sort of initial physiological kind of starts if you like into what I was talking about earlier this kind of worry about um children's health and well-being so we have this kind of parenting culture, which really encourages um, parents, and I'd say women in particular, to be, you know, intensely involved and concerned about their children's health, well-being, development. If somebody comes over to uh, one's house, for example, whether the house is sort of clean or tidy, whether the children are eating well and healthily, you know, those kinds of things, it's an onus which still falls on women um, on the whole. Not exclusively and not necessarily i don't think but i do think that therefore uh, rather than just sort of saying to couples well you need to you know have a conversation about who does more we do need to think more structurally about these messages and the way that they're targeted
0: i guess so with that in mind let's talk about shared parental leave In each episode, we hear from a member of the GDST family. This is Rebecca Brown, head of Northwood College, on the importance of creating a culture both in school and at home where both parents can be equally involved in their child's upbringing.
2: Thus far at Northwood, we haven't had any of our male members of staff requesting shared parental leave, but it is absolutely something that I'm open to and actually would love to encourage within the school. Um, I feel very strongly Um, that parental equality is vital to good family relationships and ultimately to to women's choices too. Until men in our schools feel able to share parenting responsibility equally from day one of their child's life, we won't be able to support families in making the choice that's right for them in their own unique circumstances. And ultimately that does have an impact on gender equality. And that's something that every head of a GDST school feels really passionately about. This is the, the remaining piece in a jigsaw puzzle really that's been coming together over the last few years. I I think it's important for our dads, to, of course, to attend things like sports days and parents' evenings. I expect that male members of staff will share compassionate leave necessitated by child illnesses. And I would really like to think that going forward, they'd feel able to request part-time working, um, again, based on what's right for their family unit. Um, But it's about creating a culture and celebrating the positive impact that equal parenting can have in an organisation. So Charlotte, do you feel that um, if more men were
0: to take the opportunity of shared parental leave, because let's not forget that a very, very small minority of men do actually take the shared parental leave to which they're entitled. Do you feel that that would make a difference in the way uh, women perceive their role as mothers and in the way society perceives the role of mothers in turn? I think there's a good argument for that.
1: I think, again, the first thing to say is that it's actually a very small uh, proportion of people who are eligible to take up the uh, shared parental leave provision as it currently stands. Um, It kind of requires both partners to be employees. So if one of you is freelance, if one of you doesn't work, you know, these kind of things. Um, And actually that affects people across the class spectrum. So when we talk about very low rates of uptake, it's actually because it's you know the policy itself already excludes many many people. But um, you are right that even within the sector of people who are eligible, there's fairly low levels of uptake. And really, that for me is a problem of of the fact that historically the policy has been based around a transfer of maternity leave. So it's kind of up to the mother to give her leave to the partner. Unlike other countries, you know, like Scandinavia, where a certain amount of leave is earmarked for each partner. So, for example, you know, the mother gets three months, uh, the father gets three months, and then they have three months to split between them. And that, to me, would make a bit more sense in terms of providing couples with the the scope to make choices that sort of fit within their own lives in that it's not too punitive. It doesn't rely on kind of giving up something.
0: Yes, because let's not forget that some women, uh, myself included, I have to say, uh, I, I'm not sure that I would have wanted to leave my baby while I was still breastfeeding, for example, and, and let her dad take that time. So it, it is obviously about personal choice. Um, can I ask you, what does equal parenting look like in practice? Is it as simple? as you both do the washing up?
1: For me, it's not that simple. I think that's one way of thinking about equality in parenting. And I think, you know, obviously one of the things this podcast is quite interested in sort of thinking about is, is the modelling of equality for our children. Um And so what does it mean for children to sort of see equality in practice? And for me, I think that kind of very 50-50 um, idea as to who does what is Arguably a little bit too uh, simplistic for taking into account how family life actually kind of works in practice. And there's inevitably a bit more of an ebb and flow around that. So, you know, in the, in a study that I've done um, recently, actually with a colleague at, at UCL, we've been looking at this, like and how different couples talk about what equality means to them. And some of them, it is this very 50-50 thing. Well, I did the washing up last night, so it's your turn to do it tonight. For others, it's more of a sense of kind of balance or overall fairness. You know, within most sort of ideas about equality, it's about having recognition for what one brings to the household or to the relationship. And so it's not necessarily about, you know, I did the washing up 70% of the time and you did it 30%. It's about feeling recognised and validated for the kind of contributions that you make. So it might be, for example, that somebody doesn't um, engage in paid labour outside of the home. They don't have a job, as it were. They run the household, uh, but they feel, you know, validated, recognised, an important player. uh, Whereas the partner is, you know, out of the house, let's say, um, earning a salary that can support the family. That, to me, could well be a really good example of equality if that's sort of how the couple or the family you know choose to to play it so i I don't think it's about sort of being too dictatorial about what equality should look like. I think it's more about this issue of sort of recognition and how people understand it for themselves,
0: yeah. It's an interesting point because I think anybody who has ever brought up kids knows that it's almost impossible to stick to a prescribed plan because things do not always go according to plan. Um, In what you've just said around uh, the equality of the home being that the person who, you know, the equality is that one person stays at home and the other person goes out to work, I can see how that would feel like a very clear division of labour. What is a couple who does that modelling to their child, especially if it is mum who stays at home
1: well again I think it you know it's not really my place to say oh well you know all women should be going out to work for example if they want to be true you know feminists or if they really want to model equality and I think it's probably about modeling to your children that you know within the confines of the society in which we live we are all sort of pulling our weight in different ways I guess uh, contributing somehow and it doesn't necessarily have to be financial I mean I think actually it would be quite sad if children thought that that was the only contribution that you know parents could or should make uh, to their sort of happiness or well-being Um, you know at the same time like I'm somebody who works full-time got two small kids and um, you know another one on the way as does my partner and for both of us our careers are really really important um, for our own sense of identity and, and all the rest of it and I think Children probably at some level recognise that, you know, certainly as they get older. It must be very hard if you grow up in a household where someone's felt very, very resentful about being, you know, unable to pursue professional um, pursuits, for example. So.
0: Charlotte, let's go back to what you said a moment ago um, around the value that is placed on paid and unpaid work. So the majority of people who are doing unpaid work in the home are women. Should we, um, you know, at governmental level, uh, at policy-making level, should we be recognising the contribution of those women? Should we be thinking about a complete paradigm shift in order to make the roles more equal and more valued by, by children in turn? Oh,
1: it's such an interesting question. And actually it taps into... You know historical debates within feminism. There was a campaign in the 1970s called Wages for Housework, which kind of worked out that if you were to pay a housewife, as it was in those days, um, for her labour around you know managing the home, being a PA, you know looking after the kids, um, it would have been a really decent salary. I mean, in today's terms, I think probably something like you know sixty to seventy thousand pounds. I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that argument because again, I think it brings the question of value back to money. And I don't necessarily think that that's how we sort of want to be the absolute like arbiter of what really counts it to make a meaningful life. Um, at the same time, I do agree that the work that goes on in terms of sort of keeping the show on the road. Um, could do with better recognition. And for me, I think that would be about um, social kind of support for the responsibility of raising children. So again, not to sound too sort of um, rose-tinted about the Scandinavian countries, but there you see a very high level of investment in uh, childcare. Uh, You have like really good policies around parental leave. You have a lot of support for families. I mean, obviously that's funded through higher taxes, but there is also a kind of sense of social solidarity that comes, I think, through that sense that the state will look after you and you are sort of part of the state. There's this kind of weeness that people feel. Um, you know, we are a, a community. We are a, a society that um, cares about our citizens, you know, the young and the old. And so if you grow up somewhere like that, I think you can feel slightly more supported than um arguably in in our kind of country, which is very sort of privatised, you know, where families have to kind of cover the cost of childcare themselves, certainly for the first two, if not the first three years in the vast majority of cases. Um, and I think, you know, linking into some of the work I've done about Changes to parenting culture more broadly, much more of an idea these days that having children is a kind of individual lifestyle choice. If you can't afford to have kids, why, you know, why did you have them? There's no sense really that having children is a social good. I think it then becomes a very antagonistic. Issue when it's raised in, for example, the context of the workplace. So, well, why do you get to leave early on a Friday to do the school run? Or why do you get like extended maternity leave or paternity leave? I want to be able to go and walk my dog, or I want to be able to go and do this, or do, you know. And so suddenly we have this idea that it's just another lifestyle choice rather than a really crucial element of social reproduction. And I think, again, the pandemic really sort of magnified some of these issues around. The fact that, you know, childcare was absolutely essential to a functioning economy, um, but also therefore (laughs) that kind of, you know, in the long run, we are going to need citizens who are able to kind of care for other citizens. And obviously, the younger generation are going to be really critical to that. And so I think suddenly these issues have become politicised in a way that, you know, they haven't been. um, And I think that would be a good sort of hook if you like for people interested in this or campaigners around it to you know think about how we reframe care as we move into you know the next sort of generation I guess.
0: Can you see this happening? We started our podcast today by talking about how um, the gender roles have been embedded for centuries. Is it going to take centuries to have this kind of paradigm shift that we're talking about? How come come those Nordic countries got it so much earlier than we... Have.
1: Again, a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, for for historians and sociologists, a lot of this division of the two worlds was about the Industrial Revolution, whereby suddenly work, you know, for money was happening outside of the home. And therefore, it was kind of gendered in that, you know, women were the ones at home not earning money and men were the ones going out to work and therefore sort of publicly recognised through being paid. And who knows? I mean, maybe one of the things that will come of the pandemic is this shifting of what work kind of means. I mean, we've had a lot of conversation about, you know, the importance of flexible working, the ability to work remotely, um, et cetera, et cetera. But as I say, this is really kind of um, stratified, shall we say, in terms of a class based reality. We're, We're kind of seeing that actually you know this this idea of being a critical worker has suddenly kind of crept back in in that oh well if you're actually a bin collector you don't need to isolate it just sort of seems like really quite horrendously handmade tale that you would have this kind of you know swathe of workers whose health is sort of more expendable than others so a very long answer to your question i don't know exactly what the future is going to look like in terms of you know the world of work and therefore what the knock-on implications are for care but i do think like i was saying that it has sort of raised the question and it's a really ripe moment to be having these kinds of conversations um and i'm hopeful that there will be some pushback uh, against the status quo
0: so speaking of um, the status quo, Charlotte, do we do we see these same phenomena in same-sex relationships? Yeah, I'm, I've done
1: some research with same-sex couples in my study about couples becoming parents that you mentioned right at the beginning. And for the majority of heterosexual couples there, there was this strong commitment to gender equality before having children. And then a kind of gradual realisation that actually this very 50-50 model, for example, just wasn't going to work in practice and You know, related kind of disappointment or frustration or, you know, that would then lead to kind of relationship problems in these heterosexual couples. In same-sex couples, there it's by no means sort of you know completely rosy because obviously these couples are still having to play by the same rules around say parental leave. So it almost forces people into this kind of um, stay-at-home breadwinner model, regardless of sexuality or, or gender. However, the thing that was really striking to me, working with lesbian couples in particular, was that there was a much greater level of kind of understanding about what each partner was up to. Um, during the the sort of early childhood years. So I'm thinking in particular of one couple who each sort of went through fertility treatment one before the other. So the first one went on to have um, a child through IVF with a donor and she stayed at home for a year to look after that child. And then a year later, the other mother used the same donor to conceive a child and she stayed at home. And that I think is obviously a very unusual uh, setup when we're thinking kind of statistically across society. But what was really incredible was that they both just really sort of understood what the other one was doing. And I think what we see in opposite sex couples more often is that there's this kind of forking of experience. You know, so one, you know, often has to go out to work even more because the other one is not working. And therefore the household income is going to drop just at the time that you've had a child and you need more money to support things. So then there emerges this kind of schism and it becomes a question of not really understanding the world that your partner inhabits and feeling very distant, very isolated, very, you know, underappreciated, which goes back to this question around representation. And that was then when we saw kind of more cases of like relationship breakdown or disappointment, which was less the case in lesbian couples, particularly if they had both raised uh, children, but not only in that case.
0: Yeah. It sounds like a brilliant argument for promoting shared parental leave, the ability to experience something firsthand in order to appreciate what your partner has been doing. Exactly.
1: But the problem, you know, again, sorry, just to go back to the policy, one of the big problems with it is that it's still tagged to the mother's pay very often, unless the the father's employer tops up. Some do, some don't. So, you know, for a lot of couples, it's a nice idea, but it is just not you know, feasible in reality if there's no top up. I mean, maternity pay, Itself, the statutory rate is so appalling <laughs> that it kind of—it's uh, it, already like very, very unequal. Um,
0: it is. It is startlingly low, isn't it? Mm. Okay, we we have talked about what policymakers can and perhaps should be doing. As as Charlotte, as opposed to Dr. Faircloth, what <laughs> what would you be saying? parents can be doing in the household to model equal parenting yeah again
1: (laughs) a big question but I suppose some of the things that you know me and my husband talk about this sort of issue of like recognizing that if one of you has been like picking up the slack shall we say because the other one has been working much longer hours that that is sort of yeah appreciated and recognized and not taken for granted I think that's like a really um, important thing but i suppose even within that there's a kind of inbuilt sense that um that we have a sort of idea of like fairness between us um i think it's it's very very tricky I, I mean i think if you as a couple um appreciate that having children is a joint enterprise and something that you both want to do and you know to sort of enjoy as it were then you both need to kind of put the hours in i think it must be very very difficult for couples where there is one person who's been really driving wanting to have children and the other one is maybe a bit more reluctant um but yeah i think it's about sort of an acceptance that it takes a huge amount of work you know and not just sort of seeing uh being with the kids all day on a saturday as leisure time you know that is that for me would be like that's that's a lot of work (laughs) um as much as it might be fun you know so i think it's it's partly Um, yeah, just looking at the activities that go on in the household and recognizing what takes work and how to sort of best support that, you know, not necessarily by doing half of the washing up or half of the cooking, but it might be, but sort of then providing space for your partner to do something else if they haven't had any, you know, other time or yeah, those kind of things.
0: It's interesting what you say about the half of the washing up and half of the cooking, et cetera, because I do sometimes wonder if it comes down to personal preference, that if you have a much lower dirt threshold than your partner, you're the one that ends up cleaning all the time. I mean, does it just come down to those kind of relationship quirks that you have to manage and get through, do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, I think it'd be really hard to sort of have like a, you know, a policy stance on this, shall we say. But at the same time... It's interesting how often it comes up that it's men who have a lower dirt threshold than women, right? So it, it, there's obviously something going on uh, socially around, you know, how, why, when, who does the cleaning. And I guess for a lot of people, you know, growing up in households where it was just sort of taken care of, um, you know, I think it it is probably um deeply gendered from quite a young age. Um, I think probably, again, as a couple, it's about sort of working out what your thresholds and baselines are. And particularly when you have children, there are kind of fairly basic uh issues around sort of hygiene, safety, cleanliness, all the rest of it, which perhaps it then provides an opportunity to say, like, this is unacceptable. Like, we cannot have food going off in the fridge or, you know, if something falls on the floor after they've eaten, like, you you know, it cannot be left there for four days because it will then, <laughs> I don't know, will them rot the carpet or something. So, I, But can uh, we still have the five-second rule? <laughs> <next>? <laughs> you're allowed to have the five-second rule, yeah, <laughs> officially. Um, so I guess, I guess it's just those sorts of things where you're like, look, this is not just me saying I don't like the look of this and it makes me feel, you know whatever it looks untidy there are sort of some sort of you know basic uh, issues that need to be taken care of in terms of health and
0: safety um okay we are coming to the end of our uh, discussion now so charlotte what should we as parents be letting our children see us do in order to um give them an example of what they can aspire to in their future relationships
1: it would be quite easy for me to sit here and sort of say, well, you know, I think girls should be, you know, really encouraged academically and that should be the, you know, the the, the focus of their um, sort of activities and, and all the rest of it. But actually, when I think about it, I think it's really important that girls and boys see what goes into running a household from a young age. And I don't just mean kind of, you know, oh, it's your turn to empty the dishwasher, and you know, helping out with chores and things like that. But really, kind of appreciating the logistics and you know the the sort of management that's required around you know planning meals, for example, shopping, booking holidays, coordinating things between family members, all of that. Um, so it's it's hard to say exactly what that might look like. But I'm I'm reminded of a, a very good colleague of mine who's now uh, a lecturer in sociology in Cambridge. And her mum brought her and her brother up only to kind of focus on their academic activities and sort of went, you know, you go upstairs, do your homework, dinner will be ready by the time you come down. And then she went on to have her own family and so she feels really kind of cheated or like unprepared rather for the reality of like trying to run a family. Um, and arguably her brother might do too, but you know, who knows what the gender politics is like in, in um, his relationship. So I think it's it's important not to downplay the work that goes on um in keeping the show on the road i guess sort of like i was saying earlier and that children feel active in that that they're not just kind of receiving um the whole time so it's obviously really easy for me to say and i know that you know children are often very reluctant to kind of um be part of these things but i think yeah, again, it goes back to this question of like recognition around labour and trying to make everybody feel sort of a, a valid participant in that because it's a shared benefit, you know, and it shouldn't fall on one person, you know, inevitably at various points in the life cycle that will, you know, be the case, you know, when children are very, very, very really small, when somebody is very, very old, you know, but in the, the grand scheme of things, you want to all feel like you're contributing as much as you can, I guess.
0: Which I think is a perfect point on which to leave it. Dr. Charlotte Faircloth, thank you so much for your time and your insight into equal parenting. I know that really will have helped the parents and carers of both young women and young men. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST. To hear all the experts we have on this series and to make sure you don't miss one, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you could leave a review and a five star rating, it'll help other parents and carers to find the podcast so they can listen and learn too. I'm Kathy Walker. Join me on the next episode of Raise Her Up from the Gdst when we'll be marking World Mental Health Day by talking with clinical psychologist, writer, mental health speaker, and podcast host Dr. Tina Mystery.
1: During teenage years, we are going to be almost seduced into trying different things that deviate from what our core values are.
0: As parents, we've got to ride that, but always to give the child opportunities to come back home. I'll see you then.